Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who, who had invited him saw this, he said to, him, to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for us today. And please don't close your Bible because I will point out to you a number of places where we need to just pay attention to some things. But before I continue, hear the words from one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, the late A.W. Tozer. Who wrote this? It's right overhead. Grace will save a man, but it will never save him and his idol. The blood of Christ will shield the penitent sinner alone, but never the sinner and his idol. Faith will justify the sinner, but it will never justify the sinner and his sin. There's a number of issues present in the text that we have just read, and we need to understand them clearly, because if we don't, we run the real risk of thinking ourselves worthy of Christ on our own merit and work, and we run the risk of thinking the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God too little a thing for us to value. This is something that everyone in this room grapples with. Am I truly worthy? Am I truly saved? But here's the comforting news. If you are saved, he saved you. If you could lose it, you would have lost it already. But it, since he's the one who saved you, you have not to fear when you, fear, you face doubt. So here's the first issue that I want us to look at as it comes from the text. It's overhead. It's in a feeling manner. Sin is greater than a moral construct. 
Sin is greater than a moral construct. The original good doctor, the late David Martin Lloyd-Jones from England, wrote this, The tragedy of sin is that it affects man in his highest faculties. Sin causes us to become fools and behave in an irrational manner. This is also corroborated by the late C.H. Spurgeon, one of my favorite theologians. It is not said in heaven, moral, moral, moral are you, O God. It is said, holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord. And this is one of the great problems with the gospel that many churches preach today. Thankfully, we have a pastor who fears the Lord and not the public opinion. Praise God for that. Because here you will hear that the Bible actually teaches that there's a holy God, that all of us, according to the grace of the scriptures, have been born under sin because of the original sin that took place with Adam and Eve. And as a result, according to the testimony of John chapter 3, we are all deserving of death. Whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, that is the real issue of our sinfulness. And here we have verses 36 through 39 providing us a picture in the way that society, even today, as it did, as it did back in the time of Jesus, looks at the outward appearance to assess whether people have value or not. Whether we are worthy of fitting in or not. Simon the Pharisee sees as humanity sees. But he, the Son of God, God in the flesh, sees what the two eyes that you and I have affixed to our, our heads cannot. Here we have the problem. Let's go back to the text. We have a Pharisee who in verse 36 asks Jesus, Hey, come and have dinner at my house. We'll have a banquet. But then in verse 37, we are introduced to the conflict of this, of this particular scene in chapter 7. A woman of the city who was a great sinner learns that Jesus is reclining at the table, and she brings with her something of great value to her, an alabaster flask of ointment. This is not your typical ointment like Vicks, I'm Hispanic, sana sana colita de rana, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is a very expensive perfume is being brought by a sinful woman into the presence of the living God. Here, we see that Jesus sees as God sees. Jesus can see the heart of the person and assesses the value of this individual, or any individual for that matter, by nothing less than the object of his or her faith and the intentions of his or her heart. But see, here we are introduced to this scene where the woman weeps, wets the master's feet, wipes them with her hair, and then uses the oil from this costly perfume, pouring it upon his feet as an act of worship. And yet, in the middle of this lavish show of affection, what does the Pharisee focus on? Praise God, another sinner saved by God's grace. That's, that, that's what the Pharisee said, right? Oh, my house has been used as a place where God shows mercy. Ooh, this house is good. This is a good place. No. This is what he thinks to himself. If this man were truly a prophet, he would know what despicable person is touching him. He would know that this woman is a great sinner. Can you relate to that? <laughs> 
everyone in the room, everyone watching online, we've all been guilty of coming into times where we think ourselves highly worthy, but our neighbor and our friends, when they stumble, well, let's just borrow from Jesus. We want to pull out the speck in their eye, but we have a hard time taking out the log from our own. Here we see this exchange of a woman who in her humility before the Son of God worships while the Pharisee pretends to make himself an equal with the Son of God or he pretends to make himself a higher authority than the one who gives the law. Here's the problem. It's not a moral construct. It's not a simple, this is good and this is bad. We have it here in the United States. Socially, we have those constructs. That's why, I'm going to go for something polemic here. Love me despite of that. That's why we have Christians on both sides of the aisle on the abortion issue. Oh, it's a good thing to kill a baby in the womb because it gives women women choice. If murder is a choice, yes. Then you can have that. And if I'm offending you today, come talk to me after this. I can make time for you. If, murder, if murdering a baby is a choice, then sure, that, that's a moral construct. It's good. It gives people choice. It's good. But is it holy? The holiness of God demands that we understand that sin is greater than what you and I can ever think of sin. That sin is a great offense against a holy God who lives in the highest of heavens where angelic beings proclaim, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. This is why we also see in the, in the beginning of this gospel that John said, I'm unworthy of even untying his shoes. That is one of the most loathsome objects that we can wear, especially if you're a rancher, you wear your boots and you always brush them off. Why would that be? Because if you're a rancher and you're actually cattle and not, and not all hat and boots, you're stepping on some dung. And if you're married to a, a wonderful wife who keeps the house well and she takes care of you and everything else, if you bring that dung into the house, what is the response you're going to have? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you cannot say amen, say ouch. Here we have the problem of a holy God being tainted even by our presupposition of being good enough because of anything we do. Sin is a much greater deal than a moral construct that we may be led to believe by society, by a church, by any leader, pastoral or not. Here we see that the problem each one of us are facing today is that as we see those who have entered eternity, we overvalue the worthiness of God's mercy for ourselves, but we do not value it enough when it comes to other wretched sinners like us. Much like this Pharisee. You see, you have to question this. You have to ponder this. What is sin worth in comparison with God's forgiveness? You have to ponder that in your heart. I have to do that too. How do I measure myself against the vastness of God's mercy and grace? How do I measure others against that great, wonderful balance available to them? That's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? 
If you and I actually spent time thinking on this, we would have to call into work, we would have to use all of our PTO just to begin to scratch the surface of this great gift of forgiveness that comes from God. Why? Because we cannot even, for all of us all, all of us who have lived long enough, study the Bible every weekend so that we could either teach it or do whatever with it, definitely not enough time for those of us who have been trained in seminary to begin to scratch the surface of the glory of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. There's not enough time. But the real point that I can leave you with is this. You need to know how great your sin and my sin is so that we can then in turn begin to appreciate the greatness, the weightiness of God's grace, love, and mercy for each one of us. If we do that, then we come to terms with the second point. Forgiveness received is a life transformed. That is the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this faith called Christianity. Unlike any other faith system in the world, unlike any other God, we see a God who forgives and transforms those who have repented. Listen to the words, and they're overhead, by the late Oswald Chambers. Listen. The most marvelous ingredient in the forgiveness of God is that he also forgets the one thing a human being can never do. Forgetting with God is a divine attribute. God's forgiveness forgets. Now that's a quote for you to live by. God's forgiveness forgets. I'm going to pick on those who are married right now. I'm one of them. How many of us have gotten into arguments with our spouses? Oh honey, I forgive you, everything is fine. But the next argument you have... Well, do you remember what you did back in that day, back on this day, back on this hour, back on this minute, back on this second? A a amen, anybody? Amen. Thank you. Wouldn't you like it if your spouse actually lived by this statement? To have the, the, the quality of God that forgetting is part of forgiving. And that's what's available here. You may ask, well, how do you see that? Well, take a look at what's going on in the text. It's in the very first few verses. Jesus' response to this the response to this woman is very distinct. Where Simon's heart towards the woman is one of rejection and astonishment at her moral indignation and the disregard for the norms of the day, Jesus responds to this woman in these three ways. He's not caught by surprise. He's reclining at the table, and as he's reclining at the table, the woman shows this act of love and humility towards him. He's not taken by surprise. He's not repulsed by the wayward woman who is called a great sinner by the Pharisee. He shows love and compassion just by receiving her without raising alarm, without making a scene. And Jesus allows her to follow in obedience to the lavish love of God as an, expression, as an expression of her repentance. That is what's happening in these verses. Jesus receives her, does not condemn her, but welcomes her and allows her to follow through with her intentions because he sees the intentions of the heart. He does not see the sin that marks that letter A upon her breast for everyone to see. By the way, that's a literal reference. I hope that you're well read. Beyond these important details, Jesus speaks not to the woman 
in her lavish love, but she now exhorts the Pharisee, speaking to the fact that in his heart he has devised evil against the woman. And he teaches the Pharisee in the form of a parable. Listen to what the Lord says to him. Jesus answering to him, verse 40, he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He answers, say it, teacher, the gall of some people. If this man were truly a prophet, yes, say it, teacher, go ahead. Have you met people like that before? I'm sure you have. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not repay, he canceled the debt for both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Isn't it like Jesus to teach us with gent gentile and kindness? He is not being arrogant. He is not being despairing. He is showing the same love of compassion and compassion for this man that he showed for the woman, where he did not show that same compassion and concern for the woman. Speaking of Simon. So Jesus takes this parable in the midst of this particular scene in Scripture, and we see that there are important things that are missing. Simon learns about the two debts and aptly expresses the bottom line of the lesson. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who perceive to have little to be forgiven, love little. Jesus points to the fallacy of self-justification in Simon and expounds on the reality of the gospel's balances for God's justice. This is what Jesus is doing. Those who know their true stands before God as sinners, welcome to sinners not so anonymous. I'm glad you're here. This is the first Baptist divine chapter. They embrace forgiveness and express lavish love because of the freedom experienced through the redemption from the idol of self. That is what sets Christianity apart from any other religion in the world. We have been set free from idol worship, even within ourselves, thinking that we are good enough, handsome enough, beautiful enough, smart enough to earn something. And now we are actually free to worship the living God. Simon muses on Jesus as though he were some sort of entertainment. He brings this prophet to dine at his table during the banquet. But the sinful woman surrounded, who surrendered to the Son of God gives show of her loyal and undying love for him because of a divine love and the eternal forgiveness that he offered her. You see, Simon knows the law frontwards and backwards. The woman met the lawgiver, but Simon only knows the law. This is the problem that Jesus constantly attacked when he met with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes. If you remember when they heard the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew 5 through 7, they say, this man teaches with authority unlike the scribes. You think? He's the one who wrote it. You want me to tell you where? Where? Moses went to, 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 the, to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God. It said that the hand of God wrote it. Anytime you read in the Old Testament symbol of humanity, guess who's present? Christ. If that's not enough, when, the, when in Genesis it says, in the beginning God created and he spoke and the word went forth and it was, guess who's the word according to John chapter 1? Christ. Here we see the lawgiver himself. 
showing the true meaning of the law, where we as Pharisees as we can become if we allow ourselves to fall into that temptation, would judge people for sinning differently than we do, but no the less as difficult and as pining for us when we face a holy God. When it comes to God and the gospel, we can surely expect the transforming power as we surrender our lives to him. Truly do we as good Christian men and women have this particular hymn in our, in our songbooks in front of us or underneath us for the first row. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. This is what we confess. And that is what this woman who was wayward in her life experienced at the feet of Christ. This is the kind of love she received, the type of forgiveness that she experienced, and this is what the Pharisee, for knowing all of the law with his head knowledge, could not grasp at. That the law does not justify, but points our fallacies. It points to our shortcomings. It points to our sinfulness. That we may see the need for someone greater than the law. Truly, is it true when it says in scriptures, someone greater than Moses is here. And that's whom you and I have to hold on to. So I ask you to consider this. What is the result of experiencing such forgiveness that radically transforms? Do you hold fast to the law? Or do you hold fast to the lawgiver? To whom are you holding fast? Or better yet, to quote this wonderful song that I love so much, he will hold you fast, right? The opening chorus of that, or verse of that, of that song says, For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. That is the true nature of the gospel. It's the true nature of our sin and our fallenness. But it's also the true nature of the one who forgives so freely. You see, it's already there for you. God-given faith leads to humble obedience and worship. It does not lead to your better life now. It does not lead to you sowing a seed of 500, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, any amount of money so that God can bless you. That is a, I'll say it because it's also on, on, online and you all need to hear it. That's a blasphemy from the pit of hell to think that you can give money to a church and God will magically go hocus pocus, abracadabra, and your life is blessed. That is a damning lie that pastors are allowed to broadcast from the United States. And then we wonder why now we receive missionaries from South Korea and other nations saying, uh, the United States needs to be saved. Amen, somebody. And that is also what our call is as a church. God-given faith leads to humble obedience and worship. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus expresses that to the woman and to Simon. Look at the text. He gives now the particular parable, and then it says here, verse 44, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
This is what the Lord is pointing to, to us. This is where all of us are being led to understand that one, faith is not yours to begin with because you decided one morning and much like you think of breakfast, hmm, I think I'll want pancakes today. You didn't wake up one day and simply say, hmm, I think I'll have faith in God. You didn't. And if that's what you think, I'm going to burst your bubble. Listen to the words of one of my favorite theologians, B.B. Warfield, or if you want to go longhand, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, an American theologian who wrote, it is never on account of its formal nature as a psychic act that faith is conceived in Scripture to be saving. It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or nature of faith, but in the object of faith. This is the faith that you and I possess. This, the type of faith that the scriptures are teaching us. Jesus shines the light of the gospel into the hearts of all who are before him, including you and I. And both Simon and the woman are being highlighted in their relationship in the text with the Son of God. Their relationship is marked by the obedience displayed for Jesus acting out of love for what he has done in their lives. Simon, with all of his pedigree, with all of his knowledge, he sees himself as an authority over Christ, this prophet, if he were a prophet. Yes, say it, teacher. Have you ever met people who do that to you? Say it, teacher. Pray for them. Pray for yourself so that you don't act unbecomingly. But then you have a woman who we don't see any words in the text. She does not make a plea. She simply comes and lives out in response to this great repentance that she has experienced. By faith in Jesus speaks louder than any sermon ever delivered from this pulpit or any other. Her actions echo through eternity. You see, Simon opened his home for the Lord, but did not express the kind of love that is due to the guest of honor in a home at the time. The acts Jesus describes in the text are not normal procedures for hospitality. Rather, this is for those who are honored people to those who are hosting the banquet. The gestures of foot washing, anointing, and kissing are frater with a fraternal kiss, meaning on the cheeks, are all expressions of love and honor. The text is intimating that Jesus was nothing more than amusement to Simon. Oh, come here. Tell me what you're teaching. What is it that you believe? Oh, that's so interesting. Tell me more. Okay, go home now. I'm done with you. But to this woman, a presumed prostitute, simply because we don't know anything about it other than she was a great sinner, a sinner in her community. So historically, the only way that a woman would be perceived in that particular culture to be sinful would be like the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan. Someone who was married outside of the law confined in the scripture or someone who actively involved herself in the act of prostitution to earn her living. But this woman only described as sinful, not as a prostitute, not as anything else. We're just going to stick with what the text says. This sinful woman enters the banquet to which anyone is allowed because that was a concession for the community. And being an outsider in her community enters into one of the most important aspects of a family life in the home. And she expresses 
such lavish love for Christ because she understands that she's a sinner and he's proclaiming the one who is holy above all else. She enters and washes the feet of the, of the Lord with a deluge of her tears as an expression of grief and sorrow for her sins that marred the relationship that she had and has with Almighty God. Notwithstanding that, she wipes the feet of our Lord with her own locks of hair, exposing it to the people around her, which was a big no-no for the decency of the women in her time. And with her hair, a symbol of beauty and dignity, she wipes the muck and mire mixed with her own tears. This is taking a very active part in showing how she's being recreated by the one who sustains her life. And last, though not least, she takes this alabaster vial and breaks the seal and pours it onto the feet of the Lord Jesus. Now, theologians disagree on this. This was either the recompense for her wayward work or an inheritance from her family. Great cost. Most theologians think, oh, this is, this is probably a year's wages for the family. A little vial full of beautiful smelling perfume. Something that you would use for a big occasion, like a wedding. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Who is the bridegroom of the, of the church? You can think on that later. And it would not be used for such a lower part of the body as your feet. You would probably pour it onto your head so that your hair, your hair would smell of that fragrance. You would probably put it up on your neck and torso so that you could exude that beautiful essence. This great prize is being poured out as an offering of worship to God in celebration of a new life, a new relationship that's been restored with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But see, as much as we see this woman acting in faith because of the object of her faith being Christ Jesus, we see three ways in which Jesus Christ is setting her free. The first thing that Jesus says as he has been dealing with teaching Simon on grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is what he says. Your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing that he, ex that he exclaims to her. Your sins are forgiven. Then he turns and says, your faith has saved you. And finally, go in peace. Jesus is giving this woman more freedom than she ever received from a teacher of the law. Giving her a brand new identity that she had lost the moment she started being a wayward sinner out in public. Because for Jesus to say her sins are forgiven, it means that she now has a new standing before God the Father in all his glory. Not because of her works, not because she's cute enough, but because of who Jesus says she is. Then she says, your faith has saved you. Brother Carlos, didn't you say that faith does not save? It is the object of faith? Yes. Who is the object of her faith as evidenced in her actions? The Lord Jesus. She surrendered to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because he is King of kings, because he is Lord of lords, he then gives her the greatest freedom that any one of us here could ever experience. And if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you have experienced it. Go in peace. Remember what the Lord Jesus taught his disciples? My peace I live with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world do I give you peace, but I give you as the Father gives peace. This is complete shalom. Or in the Greek, complete irene. 
or Irene, if you want to say it in English, in, a ling in an English pronunciation, the complete peace of God that not only means you can be your true self, redeemed by Christ in this broken world, but the type of peace that says, you are mine because I have bought you at a great cost with my blood. This is the great peace that we talk about because it's the peace that not only affects us in the way we do things amongst one another, but it's the peace that has us at peace and true comfort, you and I, before our Maker. Where we no longer have to tremble in His presence, we come in humility. We come with great sense of reverence, but no longer fearing as enemies waiting to be put to death. But we come as children adopted into the house of a great king by the way and the power of the Holy Spirit, able to call him Abba, Father. That is the great mercy of this gospel. And this woman was radically transformed. So here is what I want you to see. God no longer has record of her sins. And if you have given your life to Christ, write this down. Psalm 103 verse 12. It testifies to the power of God's redeeming forgiveness for your sins. As far as the east is from the west, so the Lord will cast all of your iniquities and transgressions away from him. And he will remember them no more. You see, God has also made us alive with him because of his great mercy. And if you want to read how that works, go to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. We have been made alive in Christ Jesus and no longer to live in sin, but to do the works that he has called us to do. And if you were here for VVS two years ago, you remember Ephesians chapter 2. We have been saved to do these great works. And here's the last one. The great peace bought for us through Christ is because he is a great suffering servant and he has procured it with our suffering. And you can read all about that in Isaiah 53, but you can read specifically verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. This is the man who would come to make all things new, not by demanding like other religions do, that you should do this, you should do that, but simply God coming and saying, I have gone to the cross, I have resurrected, that you may believe, that you may confess that I am God. The Son of God shows himself to be worthy of faithful, loving, loving obedience, not out of compulsion. He's not a, Jesus was not a hacker. Salvation here, salvation here, half off, come and get it. No, he didn't do that. He confessed, repent and believe, for the hour is at hand. What else do you have to lose, church? And any of us who are watching online, what do you have to lose? You were born to be condemned to death already. He offers you eternal life. So why would you deny it? Why would you turn it away? That's the great gospel we have. This is the glorious gospel that, John, that, that many have died to proclaim. John Huss, Polycarp, Origen, great men of faith, bishops in the church, the great reformers. Men have died for this message. 
that it is not by the work of the works of men, sinful men and women, but it is by the work of Christ through the the cross and the empty tomb, that all of us are saved. And that is not because we deserve it, but because it is by grace alone, by the faith that we have in Christ alone, by the power of the resurrection alone. It is for the glory of God alone. And so the question comes, so what? You may hear me and, and you may think, this is not application only, Pastor Carlos. That's fine. It's not a, it's, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm here to proclaim to you the way of the truth that God, may, that God may inspire you how to live your life. I am here to simply proclaim the goodness and the truth of his gospel. But I am going to confront you with these questions. Are you burdened by the weight of your insufficient nature to be saved? You may be a Christian and, and you say, I know I'm saved, but I, I am having these expectations placed upon myself by my own estimation. Come and let Jesus set you free from unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. Just live by faith. Trust the process that he's having before you. Follow him in obedience. Are you musing over Jesus? Is he simply a good philosopher, a good teacher to you? That's a good way to be damned to hell, friends. Don't do that. Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a philosopher. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he makes his very exclusive mark. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is not a daisy church. This is not, I'm in today, I'm out tomorrow. The Bible confesses and teaches that you're either saved or you're not. So if you are playing hokey pokey with Jesus... You need to repent, confess your sin, and surrender wholly like this woman did. Don't care about anyone else in the room looking at you, confessing your sin, maybe, maybe thinking you thinking you were saved before, but really not being wholeheartedly about it. Just surrender. Repent and confess that He is your Lord and Savior. Lastly, do not think yourself too far gone. There may be people watching today or people here in this room who think, Brother Carlos, if you knew the sins that I have committed in my life, you would know why I think God does not love me. And I would caringly, lovingly simply tell you this. If you look around, everyone in this room has committed murder in their heart. They have committed adultery in their heart. They have turned to wayward idols at one time or another in their lives. From the guy preaching the message to you to anyone else here with pastor or deacon after their name. We all have been there. You're not too far gone. The grace of God that can reach out as far as the east is from the west to deposit those sins is the same grace of God that can reach the penitent sinner so far removed from his grace and mercy to bring him back home. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a story that goes to that effect, right? The good shepherd, what does he do? He leaves the 99 and goes searching for the one. <sighs> That's a great gospel, friends. That's the great hope that we preach and teach. And it's all made evident in the, in the empty tomb. It was manifested in the cross. Because where other gods will selfishly say, you need to be holy like I'm holy, figure it out. The living God has said, be holy as I am holy, and I will buy you out. I will buy you out from the market of slavery, and I will set you free. 
What a great gospel. What a great message that we see Jesus meeting with a centurion, not even face to face, but confessing that he is powerful and the authority over all says, if you say so, it's going to happen. Then we see him giving life to the, the, the son of a widow who was put now out to pasture, if you would, in her community. And then we see him dealing with the doubt coming from those inside of the household of God. Are you truly the one of whom John preached? It's fitting that in his great wisdom, the spirit then closes out chapter 7 with this. You're not too far gone. You're not too far removed from his presence and his grace. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guest at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.